Well, this morning we are going to look at the story of Stephen from the book of Acts, and it's a long story, particularly Stephen's speech or sermon, and so uh, we're going to skip actually most of it. We will read chapter 6 and then pick up at the tail end of the speech and read of Stephen's martyrdom. So the text is printed on the back of your bulletin. And we will read it now. Let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the, of, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." And skipping forward to uh, chapter 7, verse 51, and the end of Stephen's speech. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never goes out from you and returns empty. It always accomplishes your purposes, and we pray that that would be true this morning in this place in our hearts. We pray that you would do this um, because of your goodness and kindness towards us, that you would do it through your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus. We, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, I did not spend a, a lot of time uh, watching the the Winter Olympics, this past Winter Olympics, but you know, even if you weren't tuning in, it was really hard to miss the struggles of the skier Michaela Schifrin. She's a, an elite skier, and uh, against all expectations, she failed to bring home a medal. You may have heard, uh, and failed uh, in a, a number of places to even finish her races. And so, one article said this. <laughs> Schifrin sat slumped by the side of the course with her head in her hands after her aborted run and choked back tears while trying to come to terms with what had happened. Yeah, I mean, no, she said in response to a question on whether she would continue to compete at these Olympics. I will try to reset again, maybe try to reset better this time. But I also don't know how to do it better because I just don't. It's a difficult moment, isn't it? When you come to the end of your preparation, when you come to the end of your gifts, when you come to the end of your skill set, and you think to yourself, I just don't know how to do it better because I just don't. And that's the moment when we're, we're often forced to look outside of ourselves which most of us don't really like to do, right? Uh, we don't like uh, in that moment of crisis to have to call on a pastor or a lawyer or a family member or a friend. We don't really like to ask for help. But all of us at some point uh, come to what Frodo Baggins called the end of all things, right? And we have to find someone that we can trust. We have to find someone who can make us right when we're wrong, someone who can, can represent us. And so if, at first glance, that may not be what we might think the, the story of Stephen is about. But as we unfold this passage, I think we're going to find that it is. And so three really simple sections this morning. But uh, before I tell you those, I, I want to take just a minute to get us up to speed on the book of Acts, since this is a, a one-off sermon. Uh, Acts is a book of the Bible that tracks what happened immediately after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus recorded in Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, and also after the ascension of Jesus, which happens, uh, we've touched on in this service, uh, early in chapter 1 of Acts. And so many people have rightly said that a fuller name for this book might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it follows the, the disciples who were laid low, by the death of Jesus, and then brought high, spiritually speaking, by his, his resurrection, and then empowered by his spirit at Pentecost. Empowered to go out and to tell the good news uh, for themselves and, and to call people to repentance and faith and community in the life of the church. And so in the flow of the book, these things are, re are really taking off in, in Acts. The church is on a, a major winning streak in the first few chapters of this book. But after some of those major early successes, things really start to turn for these early Christians. Not, of course, that any uh, steam is lost out of God, uh, his powerful work of building his church. But success leads to, in the book of Acts, powerful people, powerful entities going on the attack. And so 
things get very chaotic, they get violent, and, and as the powers that, that Christianity threatens begin to push back, that sort of culminates in many ways in this, in the martyrdom of Stephen the deacon. So that's where we're at. Three simple sections here, Stephen selected, Stephen seized, and Stephen stoned. So let's look at the first of these, Stephen selected. Uh, the more specific, inside of the book of Acts, the more specific um, uh, context for the story is this. The church is, we mentioned, growing very quickly. And any organization that grows quickly has to really catch up, right, organizationally, administratively. And so the Hellenists, the Greek Christians, feel like they're widows who, who need a lot of help, were being neglected over and against the Hebrew widows. And so the 12, the disciples summon everyone, and they say, they say, essentially, hey, we're busy preaching, so we need to elect deacons. And the word is not used here, but that's what they are. Uh, to care for these physical needs as we are caring for the spiritual needs of the congregation through prayer and the teaching and preaching of the word. And so they choose these men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And side note, we sort of skate over the names in Scripture a lot, right? I know I do. And uh, if you look closely, though, these are not just names. They are very specific people. It says, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And so it's not just any Nicholas. It may have been around. That was probably a common name. It's Nicholas of Antioch. In other words, Luke is identifying for his, his first readers someone, uh, various people who, who they might know, or at least know someone who knows or uh, could check and verify the story that he's, he's telling. So uh, we've had some excellent scholarship in the last couple decades on this from uh, guys Richard Bauckham, Peter Williams, who've written extensively on how the names of Scripture are, are one of the reasons that we can trust the Bible. And so uh, it's good, again, side note, to remember that these stories were self-consciously told to be verified. So then we get a little foreshadowing with Stephen. He is listed first, almost as if he is the first chosen, a, a sort of overperformer, a class president type, maybe. And it says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. That is very high praise isn't it? And so uh, we should put a little mental bookmark there. And then it says, the apostles prayed and laid hands on him. In other words, this is an ordination service. These early Christians are good Presbyterians. They are reflecting the order and authority of the church that we see being built in the New Testament. And there is a larger point here that, that's really in the, the whole book of Acts, and it's something that may be uh, obvious to us, and we may skate over it, but I have reason to point it out to our college students often, and it might be helpful to point out now, and that is simply this, that the Christian life is, is actually not merely about you and Jesus. The, the book of Acts shows us and tells us that if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, you must have a relationship with his church, his body and building and bride here on earth. You actually cannot have one without the other. In fact, Cyprian, a church father, said you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. Now, I remember feeling very scandalized by that quote when I first heard it. 
in seminary, but John Stott, who's more contemporary to us, put it this way. He said, an unchurched Christian is a grotesque anomaly. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. Now, those are strong words, right? But this is not some backhanded way of uh, shaming those who are not here today. There, there's something larger here. There's a, an orientation, a, a way of doing things, a vibe, the kids might say, today. And so we, we might put it this way. One analogy that Jesus uses for his church is that it is uh, his body and he is the head. It's his body and he is the head. And so Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the Paul that we, we hear referenced here holding the coats, by the way, in the stoning of Stephen under the name of Saul. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12 that in the church someone is a foot, someone else is a hand, someone is an eye, and so on. It's all one body, right? Now, um, I sometimes, before I go to bed, like to watch what we might call a, a murder show, uh, and, and one I saw recently was set in the Shetland Islands, so you know there's some good mystery and intrigue going on there. And in this episode, uh, it begins with a lady jogging on the beach, and she finds a hand. Now, um, just a hand, washed up. Well, how does she react? Well, as you might imagine, she is aghast. She is very upset. She runs for help. She calls the police. Someone's hand should never be just lying on the ground, right? If you see that, you know that something has gone terribly wrong. And so John Stott is saying, Paul is saying, Jesus is saying, you cannot be a part uh, uh, without the body. Otherwise, you are akin to a hand laying on the ground. Now, that's a pretty radical macabre illustration, but I think it gets at just how strong the idea is in Scripture that the church is the body of Jesus on this earth. He is the head, we as the church are his body. And it's why God contends, and in, in the early church in Acts contends against the principalities and the powers and the rulers of this world. And so, as we tackle this very violent story then, you know, maybe in some sense we should be shocked, but more properly, I think we should feel the weight of the power and the purpose that God has given to his new community. Because what's happening here is the birth of, or at least the, the rebirth of, uh, in all its New Testament fullness, the church. The church, as uh, C.S. Lewis called, he said, the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible is an army with banners. So imagine that uh, raid against the principalities and powers and rulers of this world. We can expect uh, a major clash. And so we're about to see that. We're about to see those, those principalities, powers, and rulers of this world at work uh, here in the second section when Stephen is seized. So uh, verse 7, we read something very interesting. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the, of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. That's great, by the way. Sounds 
par for the course in Acts. But then lastly it says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now why, we might ask, would a revival break out amongst this very narrow slice of the Jewish community, the priests? Uh, my friend Les Newsom helped me think about this. We've already read the passage, so you know that Stephen is about to die a very uh, violent death. But the question is, is why? Why? Now, I really think even in the shadow of the crucifixion of Jesus, the stoning of Stephen is, is really pretty shocking. It is the first martyrdom, and uh, there is just a sort of unusual savagery about it. Is there not? It says they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And we should pay very close attention when scripture uses language that is that uh, descriptive. It just feels personal, doesn't it? And so I think that is because if, if we peel the onion a little bit here, that Stephen's speech gets at the, the true heart of who these people are. Verses 11 through 14 show us ostensibly why they are so angry. He spoke, they claim, blasphemous words against Moses and God. Fair enough. In Jewish law, that is enough to stone someone. But if you go back to the beginning here, you see the early church dealing with the problem of the poor. A job that in the Old Testament belonged in particular to the priests. And so it's very possible, maybe even likely, that seeing these Christians take care of the poor actually convicted the priests, that it cut them to the heart, to use another phrase from the book of Acts. And many believed, we just read, they became Christians, uh, perhaps because they saw right in front of them a more authentic priesthood, right, connected to um, the priesthood of Jesus, and they realized that they did not measure up. They just didn't measure up. In other words, they, they came to the end of themselves. Now, I am sure that you know what that feels like. It is the, the cutting word from your spouse that gets at uh, a deep struggle of yours. It is something that someone said to you when you were a kid that is just lodged in you. You feel like you can never get rid of it. Certain things, sometimes small, sometimes seemingly innocuous things, resonate with our deepest fears about, about who we are at, at bottom, at the root of ourselves. See, a priest in the Old Testament was someone who went into the holy areas of the temple, who went into God's presence for you, who stood in the gap between the Lord and you. And this was actually common thinking, uh, even in the general public up until recently, the idea that you being sinful could not deal directly with God. And so we see in the Old Testament uh, these elaborate cleanliness rituals, these elaborate priestly rites, so that they could be set apart to represent the people before the Lord. Now, to some of us, of course, that is an archaic way of thinking, maybe even an, an offensive way of thinking. It goes against everything we're told growing up, practically every Disney movie, right? That you are smart enough, that you are good enough, 
that you bring a unique quality to this world that you need to let out, that you can do anything that you set your mind to, and nothing and no place is off limits. And we really should not fall into the trap of thinking that that's just how millennials or Gen Zs or whatever generation thinks, because that is in all of us. One of my favorite uh, espionage novels where a, a woman uh, is talking about the, the pre-World War I generation in England. She says, poor loves, trained to empire, trained to rule the waves, and now it's all gone. It's all taken away. But I think we can say something similar uh, in our uh, decadent sort of Western culture and even in our own lives, as many of us have, have grown up and have come face to face with uh, the realities of this world, that we have been trained to rule everything, uh, trained to get whatever we want, trained to get into whatever we want. I know that's how my students at TCU are often being trained. And yet, are we not still constantly yearning to be let in? Yearning to be let into the social circle that we desire, the, the in-group, what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, to be let into whatever upper echelons of clubs or vocational circles or even church circles. And ultimately, we yearn to be let into the life that we desire, a life of security and love and belonging. But the trick to life that Lewis points out in his Inner Ring essay is that no matter where you get in, you're always going to want to get through the next door. There's always one more door. So that all that you yearned for when you were in high school, when you were in college, when you started out in your career, as you pass on to the next stage, you don't care about those things in the same way. In other words, once you get there, it's not enough. You need the next door. And realistically, some of the things that you yearn for now won't be enough, and the cycle will continue. But when that yearning really comes home to roost, when it really becomes its, its most visceral, is when we just come to the end of ourselves. Maybe financially, maybe uh, in a relationship, it might be in your marriage, it might be in your friendships, it might be in your career, but at some point, we are all forced to say, I don't know how to do it better because I just don't. And that is the moment when we need someone better to do it for us. That is the moment we need a priest, a perfect priest, ultimately someone to stand in the gap between us in God, between us and the life that we want so bad, between us and all that we desire, but we just can't seem, despite all of our best efforts, and we put in a lot of effort, don't we, the, the life that we cannot seem to grab a hold of. A priest. You know, I, we have a lot of priests running around, uh, faux priests. Sometimes our priest is the phone in our pocket, that mediates between us and our loneliness. Sometimes our priest is our politics uh, or our heroes, the people that we kind of count on to, to represent us in these times. Sometimes our priest is just our own idealized 
and sort of stylized and curated version of ourselves. I think it was Chris Rock, uh, who's been in the news lately, who said, when you first meet someone, you don't meet them, you meet their representative, right? We send someone forward to, to our, our, our best representative, our best self. And some of us uh, actually never put out anything except that sort of idealized self out there. Because if anybody really got to know us, then what would they find, right? And so I'm convinced that that desire, those urges to, to get in, are actually deeply, uh, a deeply ingrained sense of God's holiness and our own sin. And that so much of our lives is actually that dynamic just playing out in other things in other ways. It's a concept of idolatry that we talk about often, right? That we have to worship something, that God made us to worship. But because of our sin and brokenness, we know that we just cannot measure up. And so we look for other things. Now, if you can see how, how deep and how heart level, how far down into our identity that that argument reaches, then I think you can begin to understand why these people completely lost it on Stephen. That they would rather kill him than have their system of merit, their system of being good enough, attacked. So Les Newsom here. Uh, it's infuriating to the religious establishment because their priesthood is being threatened. Their way of thinking about acceptability is on the rocks. And it comes out in the two trumped-up charges they pin on the most vocal of these Christians, Stephen, temple and law. At first, these Jewish leaders thought they were acceptable to God because they had the temple. The temple was where God was. Here, he was accessible, manageable, and present. Second, they thought they were acceptable because they had the law, the Torah. That was their set of social codes that defined whether you were in or out. It was a dress code, a time management plan, a mental framework for living, and a financial prioritization. The law was their grid for reality. And so that is why they react the way they do to Stephen. Their grid, their reality was threatened. And so they seize him. And ultimately, that is why we see Stephen stoned. And that's our last section here. This is the longest recorded sermon in the whole book. I wish we had time to read it. It is really masterful. Um, these men who believe, uh, much like you and me often, that they are their own priests, that they are completely secure. Stephen blows all that up. He confronts them. He spends most of his time talking about historical details, Abraham, Moses, David, talking about the temple, the visible surety for these people that they had contained God, right? And they had gotten in. They were a part of the inner ring. But even as Stephen goes on the attack, you'll notice he brings the gospel with him. He brings the antidote. He, he points to Jesus as the righteous one. And he says, the only one uh, who could really represent you, he says essentially, who could be the temple for you, who could fulfill the law on your behalf, you have killed him. You have cut yourself off from the thing that you needed the most. But by this point, they are just too far gone, and so they kill him for it. Verse 54, very powerful. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, 
full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In other words, what is the last thing that Stephen sees on this earth? He sees Jesus being a priest for him. That's what this means, right? The ascended Jesus at the right hand of God, what is he doing there? What is he doing now? He's interceding for his people. He's standing in the gap between sinful people and a perfect God. And truly, that is what we need more than anything. This full and, and final you are in pronouncement. That's why Jesus had to be both God and man. To be our representative in the sight of God. Only he can make that pronouncement. Because if you try to stand before God on, on your own merits, then you will be condemned. You'll be obliterated. But if you stand before God clothed in the merits of Jesus, the great high priest, then you will live. You'll have eternal life. You'll actually have everything that you have been searching for. Michaela Schifrin, a few months before the Olympics, lost her dad. Jeff Schifrin had been just omnipresent in her life and her skiing career. Um, he had even been her photographer for many years, so he re just really intimately connected with his daughter. And in that same article, as she deals with her failure, she said, I really would like to call him, but he's not here. So on top of everything else, I'm pretty angry at him too. That is a, a gut-wrenching uh, picture of how badly we need somebody outside of ourselves, somebody outside of even those we love the most who will inevitably fail us, somebody outside of all that to meet us in our darkest places when we just don't know how to do life any better. How badly, in other words, we need the vision of Jesus that Stephen saw, because Michaela Schifrin, what she actually wanted was to call her dad so that he could mediate between her and her failure. And that is what so many of us feel and why we need so dearly to see that we have a mediator more sure in our sin and our doubts and our failure that in our dying moments, literally or, or figuratively, that we need desperately to not actually see our own achievements, our own idealized, stylized, curated version of ourselves, the things that will fail us in the end. But what we need to see is the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of the Father being the priest that we need, giving us the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone, and saying to us essentially, hey, your fears about not being good enough are actually kind of true, but they are moot. They don't mean anything anymore because I have done all that is necessary for you to be let in to God. 
And so whatever our failures on this earth, uh, even our triumphs, uh, the life of security and love and belonging that we look for, it, it will be found in the presence of Jesus one day. And we will look on Jesus as Stephen looked on him, and we will be able to rest even in our dying moments. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and the story of um, faithful Stephen. And we pray that you would make us faithful even to death. We pray uh, that we would see Jesus more clearly and see all that he has done for us and the way he mediates for us as a perfect, a great high priest and that clothes us in righteousness and makes us acceptable in your sight. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.